You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word and we are thankful that you have given us such a firm foundation of your word on which we can base our hope and our faith in the Lord Jesus as you have revealed yourself uh, to us and uh, in us. We pray that we might see the Lord Jesus even more clearly tonight in your word and we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, This evening is a lower elementary week, so if you're kindergartner through third grader has already signed in and got a sticker, you guys can head on out where it looks like Miss Haley and Mr. JJ over there and Mr. Jason. All right. Half the room is heading out. Have fun, everyone. All right, well, here we go. Every single verse in Paul's letter to the Ephesians is just power-packed and indispensable. We would lose so much if we lost even one verse, uh, but I'm going to be honest. Ephesians 4, this, this chapter, is what I was really looking forward to most when we were getting ready to preach this book. Uh, these verses, all of Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 16, should really be read and understood together. This week, we're just going to get through verse 6, uh, but I didn't want to rush through this really important chapter. That was best and wise for us to slow down and really get all of it. Ephesians 4 is all about the life of the church, that the church is made up of individual people who have been brought from death to life, who have been brought into unity with Christ, but who have also been brought into unity with one another as the family of God, sons and daughters of God. As we already prayed together, as Jesus taught us that we should pray our Father who art in heaven. So when we talk about this idea of sonship, being a son of God or a daughter of God. Uh, How old are you? How old is the son or the daughter in your mind's eye when you think about being a child of God? I think we can tend toward thinking about how like an 11-year-old might relate to mommy or daddy or something, which can be a helpful image as we understand our relationship with God as Father. We find peace and identity. We find security with our very pleased Father. We don't have to earn His acceptance as children of Young children of loving parents might come to believe and understand, but as we thought about a couple of years together, a couple years ago together in 1 Timothy, where Paul calls the church the household of God, the the family or household of God, in the New Testament, this idea of sonship is something, I think, quite different than maybe how we imagine sonship or being a daughter as like an 11-year-old. 
Think about all the sons who are characters in most of the parables of Jesus, or even Jesus's identity as a son, the son of God. The son in all of these parables, and Jesus himself is not some like prepubescent or even an adolescent son. The son is in all of these parables, an adult son who does the father's business, acting in the name of the father. He carries the responsibility of an integral work that furthers the family's interests in the name. And in the New Testament, the sibling relationships that we see are often not children, but between adult brothers and sisters, often in their 30s or their 40s. Many of us really don't have this kind of existence any longer because for like the very first time in human history, we are now regularly removed from and moving away from our biological families. In our culture of geographic mobility, of parents in nursing homes and siblings strewn all over the country or the world, our familial existence is very different than what Paul might have experienced or described which is, I think, one reason why many of us as first-time or young parents freak out so much about what in the world we're doing. We've never really been around babies or young children. We haven't had to be. For many of us, the very first diaper that we've ever changed is the first day that we were in the hospital with our first newborn. We were removed from our nieces and nephews and cousins. We aren't up close and personal and always observing lessons of the family, of life and parenting, or being... uh, around other single adult folks as aunts or uncles or sisters or brothers or being adult children. This idea of being an adult child, uh, being a son or daughter as an adult is kind of strange for us. This isn't necessarily an evil thing. After all, Marcy and I are geographically removed from our own families in Texas, but it is a new reality that I don't know that we've properly thought through the implications of. That we are often, many of us, really isolated, family-less free agents in the world, which is one reason I think it can make it uh, feel like you're in such limbo until you get married in our culture. Singleness can often be disorienting because we tend toward talking about sons and daughters and brothers and sisters as children, and we have lost what it means to be adult brothers and sisters of adult sons and daughters. It's not a passive receiving and sitting in daddy's lap, but it is doing the work and the providing of the family, of being engaged in the family's business, each member being integral to the family's life. And all of this is what Ephesians 4 is about. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 is all about individuals who are working as part of the family business. Next week, the unified family of God, we'll see, that are made up of men and women who are no longer children in the faith, but are yet sons and daughters. But kicking us off today, Paul is going to describe the church as individuals who have received grace for a purpose, not merely to have their sins forgiven and then to give them some sense of like existential peace or something, though that too, that's amazing, but grace that the children of God, the family of God are, are going to receive is actually going to do something and that then makes them into something. So in staying under our heading for the entire book that God is bringing all things into unity with Christ, we're going to think through these first six verses in two halves. Really, uh, two commands here, that we are to walk in unity now because you are already unified. Walk in unity now, do this because of, because you are already unified. So walk in unity now. This is our first command that Paul gives. 
And Ephesians 4.1 marks a pretty stark hinge point here in the letter. It not only is the actual midpoint, like it's the first verse of the last three chapters, we just finished the first three chapters, but there is like a big blinking neon therefore in verse 1. I, therefore, and what do we know about therefores? They are there for a reason. They mark a change or a transition in the argument. In the first half, it's almost like Paul has been like flying around the clouds uh, in the skies above western Turkey, above uh, Ephesus. He's been like in a hang glider, just zooming around and just in the high and lofty theology, some of the highest and most glorious theology in the whole Bible. And he finishes that section with chapter 3, verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And with that closing of chapter 3, it's like Paul touches down in Ephesus. He unhooks his harnesses, he gets down from off the hang glider, and he now he's on the streets in Ephesus, and he looks around, and he sees businesses and traders, he sees the temple to Diana up on the hill, he sees individuals, he sees couples, he sees families walking together, and he rolls up his sleeves, and he claps his hands, and he's like, right, all right, here we go. And now he's going to give a bunch of commands, a bunch of imperatives. The first three chapters have all been what are indicatively true, a bunch of indicatives, a bunch of things that are true of these Ephesians. And now having rooted all of these true things in Christ that are true of them now and then and then only can he begin to give them commands. So what does all of this high and lofty theology do? What does it produce in these Ephesian people? Or what should it produce? Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. One commentator describes verse 1 as the topic sentence for the rest of the letter. I think that's right. What I just read, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, is the topic sentence. Uh, the, 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 the verse and the sentence from which Everything else for the rest of the letter flows. It flows out of the high and lofty theology of grace and faith and redemption and mercy and salvation and unity found in chapters 1 through 3 and then chapters 4 through 6. All then flow out of this verse. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And we'll spend many weeks to unpack what exactly that means. But walking is something that Paul has already described in Ephesians. Twice. He's talked about walking. Do you remember where these two places are? both in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The death in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. The former life of disobedience and a death were a way of walking walking, maybe even like floating along in an enslaved bondage to sin and rebellion against God. But God, remember, but God, because of mercy and grace and love, he saves people from bondage and death. He redeems them and brings them to life for what? Well, a second place where he talks about walking, chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them these good works that he has provided and prepared for his people. He acts so that his people would not move aimlessly, almost floating along in the current of the world, away from or against God, but he plucks people from this river. 
He sets them on dry ground that they would find their footing, finally, for the first time in their lives, find their footing and begin to walk toward him in the life that they were meant and that they were intended to live. Mine are days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with him. And he plucks people from this floating away from this opposition against God, and he places them on the firm ground that they might find their footing and walk. So therefore, since God has done this, since he has acted and is acting in your midst, do not just sit down. Do not keep walking away from him. And goodness me, I urge you not to jump back into the river that is taking you away from him. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He has brought you into the family life and into the family name, the family business. Now, there are lots of things that Marcy and I hope for and even expect from our kids, uh, but one of the things that we demand from them is honesty and trustworthiness. Uh, since they were toddlers, we tell them that Shermans do not lie. This is not something that we do. Shermans tell the truth. We don't intend for this to be like some sort of burdensome law on them, but an, actually an expectation for them to grow into that the family name will be known for honesty and trustworthiness. We want people to both believe Shermans when they speak and to trust us in coming to us. And so this is what Paul is saying. Live into the family name. Christians are this. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And what is the walking in the manner worthy of the calling look like? What is it? What is the family name? What do what does the family of God do? What are the expectations that they are to grow into? Well, verses two and three, and like I said earlier, the rest of this book, but let's just take a baby step here first. Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. As the family of God, his purposeful sons and daughters walk following the shepherd to the place of glory in which he has already seated you. Remember, in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, he has plucked his people and he has set them with him in the heavenly places, and yet, keep walking. There is an already and not yet existence to our lives. Their family name is the family name. The family name and character of humility and of gentleness and of patience. Now, these are absolutely countercultural characteristics, both then and certainly today. These are countercultural characteristics humility, gentleness, patience against the powerful current of the world. Humility, this first characteristic, humility or lowliness, was a word that was fairly and regularly, fairly often and regularly used within ancient Greek literature, but it was almost universally used as like a derogatory insult. So humility or lowliness was a place for servants, a place of weakness, a station in the Greco-Roman world that people would have wanted to get out of as soon and as quickly as possible. And yet, the family name, the family business, and the kingdom of Christ is built upon servanthood is built upon humility and lowliness. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He took on the form of a servant and considered others to be more significant than himself, which is Paul's entire point in Philippians 2. Like Jesus, 
His family, Jesus' family, must not just consider their own individual needs, but the needs of each other, the needs of others to be more significant than their own. That is countercultural. That requires a supernatural act of God by His Spirit in His people. The family of God is to walk in humility, in lowliness, but also, secondly, with gentleness. Jesus describes himself with both of those adjectives. He says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. The heart of Christ at its most fundamental being, at its most fundamental essence, is humble and gentle. He is the conquering Messiah who has won victory for his people, not by force, but by his death. That's as countercultural as you could possibly get. It's not a trampled weakness, but in a willing giving away of his rights, of his demands, and even of his life. And so, if we belong to this family, if we, his sheep, as we follow him, the shepherd, then we look more and more like him. And this actually shouldn't be surprising to us. Just as humans, we take on the character of those whom we spend the most time with. This is true, right? Just think about the people that you spend the most time with. This can happen positively or negatively, that we begin to take on the character of those that we spend time with. This has happened with, to me with Marcy. In so many ways, she is the voice of the Holy Spirit in my life, of deepening maturity and wisdom in my life. Now, 16 years of marriage, when we even aren't in the same room or in the same place, I can uh, often feel her cringe face like uh, when I have just said something self-promoting, uh, I shouldn't have said that. And I can see her face of like, come on, man. But even better than that, when I am about to like over-talk over someone or say something dumb, I can hear her in my head saying, don't talk, don't talk, ask questions, ask questions. And that's good. We have mutually now become more and more like each other in the good ways as we are becoming more and more like Christ. The more we understand Jesus, the more we understand his character and heart, the more that we have searched the unsearchable mysteries, the more that we have known the unknowable depths of Jesus. By his grace and through his spirit, we are conformed to his image, becoming like him, of humility, of gentleness, of after the fact, or even better, when I'm about to say something, oh, not that harsh word, I know the character of Christ. I'm becoming like him. Nope, not that place of pride or demanding attention or rights over that person. Humility, lowliness, gentleness. This is a long, lifelong process. But we become like the shepherd. We've already said in chapter one that we don't become Christians when we want some like subtle upgrade over our, or on top of our already awesome lives. Christianity is not about making good people better, but it is about making dead people alive. And even personal salvation is all to the praise of his glorious grace. And so one pastor says that the gospel brings about a new people who rejoice in the glory of Christ as their greatest treasure and who reflect the glory of Christ as their new identity. Rejoicing in Christ, reflecting Christ. This is what the gospel does. And so in humility, in gentleness, and then with patience, bearing with one another in love, we reflect the glory of Christ, his people, as their new identity is in him. 
Now, this third marker, this third characteristic of patience can mean the way that we often use patience, that of some, someone who's like calm and cool and uh, deliberate, but maybe more so in how we might think about the patience of God. When you say that God is patient, what do you mean by that? You're probably talking about like his, his patient forbearance, uh, his steadfastness with the sin of his people. He is slow to anger. He's even keeled. He is not... He does not have emotions in, in ways in which he reacts like this or that, like we are. No, he is patient. He is steadfast. And it is in this sense that the second phrase, bearing with one another in love, actually explains the kind of patience that Paul is talking about here. Jesus' people are to walk in a manner worthy of the family name in such a way that is slow to take offense, that is willing to give each other as the family of God, the benefit of the doubt, understanding that we are all sinners growing by grace and that we actually need each other to grow in this grace. That when there is conflict or tension, then verse 3, being then eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we move forward in peace and in unity, eager to maintain it. And guys, I think there is so much for us to grow in in that verse that we live in a political and cultural moment right now in which it is the very air that we breathe that is just hypercharged with cynicism, with, with suspicion, with sarcasm, with assumed motives, that if this person says something that even remotely resembles this thing in your mind or does something that you think uh, looks like something else, then that person, he or she, must be some kind of dangerous authoritarian who is just wanting to sneak some uh, legislated new way of life into culture. And both sides of the spectrum, both culturally and politically, are doing the exact same thing. Lobbing grenades of cynicism and suspicion, both ends of the spectrum, uh, ratcheting, ratcheting, ratcheting. And you know how a ratchet works. It moves only one way. It's always getting more intense, and it never releases. I think it's going to take still a while, maybe a long while, for many of us to recover from COVID. And I don't necessarily mean its physical effects on our body, but the long COVID that might still threaten the unity of the church, of suspicion, of assumed motives. But this is the way of the world. It is a raging current that flows away from and in opposition to the city of God, and it is not the kingdom of Christ. It is not the family or the household of God. In a culture of subtweeting and passive aggressiveness and gossip, we must be willing to show grace, like really and actually, be willing to have the courage to have the conversations that demonstrate our eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we must refuse, like Psalm 1 describes of Jesus, to not sit in the seat of scoffers. Scoffing, sarcasm, cynicism, we must refuse to sit in that seat. The cultural current against this kind of Christ-like unity is flowing so hard against this that we must now redouble our efforts in both our own mouths and the way that we speak, but also the cultural uh, the social media, the media inputs to our very hearts that are shaping our hopes and our demands. We must refuse to sit in that seat because God has set our feet firmly on solid ground and now we must walk. 
We must walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling. We must walk as the family and household of God. We must walk in unity to equally receive in grace uh, or to be willing to move toward and initiate through difficult conversations in grace because of those whom we love in unity, having difficult conversations with clarity and conviction and courage. And then on the other side of that coin, we must be willing to hear and receive those difficult conversations, to receive in grace the difficult conversations that those other, the others in our family initiate with us, to respond in humility and gentleness, to respond with a reciprocal eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with a, yes, you are so right. I can't see my face. Thank you for acting as a mirror for me. You're so right. Thank you. Or, man, I don't see that in my life, but thank you for loving me enough to initiate that difficult conversation with me. Let's keep talking about this because I want to grow and I want to maintain this peace. We must have the courage and the conviction and the grace to have these conversations, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Because the family of God is moving somewhere. It is a narrow road, but he has set our feet on the firm ground and we are moving. The family of God is actually on solid ground, approaching the city of God in which there is a deep and eternal and unshakable unity forever. God is bringing all things into unity with Christ. So walk in unity now, but do so because now second, because you are already unified. If that doesn't make sense, hang in there with me. You are unified, so walk in unity. We're just going to flip that around. Walk in unity because you are unified. Paul says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, the one body in verse 4 is the body of Christ, the church, a metaphor that Paul will continue to develop in verse 12, which we'll see next week. And the one spirit is the one Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that unifies and unites believers into the body of the Son of God. And yet, in the way that Paul is writing to the Ephesians, it's not as if he is describing like the Ephesian church as an arm and the Corinthian church as a foot and the Roman church as a shoulder. And then you grab all of these churches from all over the world and you put them all together. And what do you got? The body of Christ. That's not the way he is describing it. No, when put together with the way that Paul describes the body of Christ in Romans 12 and then 1 Corinthians 12, each local congregation is a full manifestation of the complete body of Christ. Did you hear what I just said? The body of Christ is not every Christian that is made up of all over the world and you put them all together. The body of Christ, in the way that Paul talks about the body of Christ, he's talking about local churches. And each local congregation is a full manifestation of the complete body of Christ. Now there is a sense in which we Christians who are here at Christ Church in Albuquerque share immediate and full unity with other Christians in local churches in Guatemala and in North Africa and in Central Asia and from Christians all over the world. There is a category of this kind of like uppercase C universal church. 
Christians from all over the world whom you may have never met. There is such a sweet and immediate unity when you meet other Christians with whom you might not even be able to communicate. And in in that sense, we do belong to the universal kingdom of Christ together and fully. But to belong to the body of Christ is to belong to a local church where all of these qualities, all of these callings of humility and of gentleness and of patience and of bearing with one another in love and maintaining the unity, all of these things, where all of those things can actually happen, can actually grow. So while there is absolutely, verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, all of this is true of all Christians and all continents and all languages and throughout all time. That's true. And yet we'll see that Paul will make clear next week that all of this, this one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all of this leads into the life of the local church. The baptism described here leads right into the local church life, where next week we'll see there are shepherds and teachers who are equipping the life of the church, the people of the church, to do the work of the ministry. Remember, remember the reason that Paul is writing all of this is because of chapter 2, that the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been torn down. So I'm going to go off on a little aside here. Uh, Ephesians 4-5 will often get weaponized against Baptists. I don't know if you see this. Maybe I'm just uh, in a blogosphere that you don't care about. Uh, But uh, we have a strong conviction, we Baptistic believers, uh, that Paul and the apostles absolutely understood baptism as a response for those who have come to faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and of the fullness of salvation or to exhibit the fullness of their salvation. And so many other denominations or traditions of varying degrees of agreement of Christian doctrine might say, you Baptists are now excluding those millions of Christians, both alive today and throughout church history, who have adopted infant baptism. You are ignoring the unity of the universal church. You are ignoring Ephesians 4-5, in which there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism by saying, nah, that infant baptism stuff, ah, I don't know about that. You are actually disunifying the church. Well, first, I'm overwhelmingly convinced that Paul would not understand an infant baptism as baptism, but secondly, and more to the point of this verse, it just fails to understand basic biblical context. Paul is laying it on so thick here in chapter 4 about what he's already described in chapter 2. That there is not one Lord for Jews and another Lord for Gentiles. There is not one kind of faith for Jews over here that is then different for the Gentiles. No, it is the same. One faith. And there is not one baptism for the Jews over here and then another baptism for Gentiles. Baptisms that might accomplish or do different things for different kinds of people. No, because the people of God have one God who is father of all of his sons and daughters. Now in Christ, you belong to him through your second spiritual birth, not your first ethnic physical birth. Now, Paul says, now because of Christ, there is one baptism for all people through one Lord and through one faith. It is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and it comes through the apostolic pattern of repent, believe, and be baptized. And that then baptism is to then be applied and lived out in the context of a body of local believers who live with humility 
and with gentleness and with patience with one another. Now, all that's not to say that we can only have unity with our local church. I'm not emphasizing the life of the local church so hard here that we can't, that I'm now telling you have no friends that are not members of this church in Albuquerque. Nor am I saying that we can't have unity with other churches in town, even that might disagree with us over baptism. Last week, uh, Jordan and I went and had a, a pastoral lunch, a lunch of other pastors that was hosted at an Anglican church where there were pastors who were Southern Baptists and Presbyterians and non-denominational pastors. We had a great time of fellowship and of food. We prayed for each other. We prayed for each other's churches. And we had a, just a really great and challenging and encouraging conversation about what it means to preach the fullness of the gospel of Jesus throughout the whole Old Testament. Like there is amazing love and unity that we all have for each other in that room when we meet, despite our disagreement over baptism or the nature of the church. And yet nearly all of us in that room that get together quarterly would agree that there is actually good reason that there are different denominations, that there are different local churches that can hold differing understandings of non-essential doctrines. Important convictions, important doctrines, but non-essential for Orthodox Christianity. They, these other churches, my friends, Presbyterians and Anglicans and non-denominational guys, they are all pastoring true churches, but there is a reason why we pastor different churches. Two of my closest pastoral friends in town are Anglican and Presbyterian. They lead their church in infant baptism, and our disagreements over baptism do not mean that then we are ignoring Ephesians 4-5. There is now one baptism into life in Christ because the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been torn down. That is what Paul is saying. God has now made one new man in place of the two, and he gives grace that these local manifestations of the full unity of the body of Christ might be fought for and maintained. Do it. Paul says in verse 1, back up to the top here, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. This is heavy language. He doesn't use this word very often in his letters. I urge you. One commentator paraphrases this as, do it now. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Do it now, which I cannot read now. When I read him saying, I urge you, I cannot read but anything other than like an Arnold Schwarzenegger voice of, hurry, do it now. Get to the chopper. There's only one more hour before I'm going to kill her. This is all I can hear, Paul. I urge you, hurry, do it now. Walk in a manner worthy of the family name. This is who we are. Do it. Do it. I urge you, do it. Christ has acted in the past to place us now in the present, which leads us to a certain future. So now... Christian, family of God, live in the light of your high and lofty and certain destiny. That's a great word. We don't, I don't think we use that word very much. This is your destiny, your glorification in Christ, your unity forever established. This is your destiny. Walk in a manner worthy of the destiny that he has given to you. Walk in unity, fight for unity, push through awkwardness for unity. 
Initiate difficult conversations with each other for unity. Just as importantly, receive difficult conversations with each other for unity. Do it now. I urge you, do not get back in the water. Do not sit down. Walk. You are a unified body. Individual body parts do not do their own thing. They do not oppose one another, but body parts protect and preserve and care for the other parts of the body. The body of Christ must walk together in unity because it is unified. This seems like a circular argument, but it's not. Your finger does not do something that is opposed to the rest of the body. Sometimes it does, but it's because it's going horribly wrong. Our internal organs fail and they fight against the body, but it's because it's going horribly wrong. When the body is working as it should, as it ought, it is unified and it works for each other. It is a body, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all. Unity. This local church life is the family business. We are about our Father's work. Jesus said this about himself, and now we belonging to Christ become about the Father's work. The Christian life is not one of just sitting on daddy's lap and experiencing peace and comfort and security. And when he's not around, then, well, when dad's around, I guess we don't have very many expectations or responsibilities because, hey, we're kids. Now, we Christians become the adult sons and daughters with high expectations and eternal responsibilities. With each other as his family, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, and because of that, with fruit, with the aroma of the Father, we become welcoming the hospitable, gentle, lowly, patient family of God that welcomes others to join us. What is your reputation? What is our reputation? When your coworkers think of you, what do they think of? Is your online presence becoming more and more humble, more and more gentle, or is it becoming more and more cynical and argumentative and, and suspicious and scoffing? Is your reputation in your neighborhood exhibiting the heart of Christ? Do it now. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, not to earn your place in the family, that maybe if you're awesome enough, he might, the father might call you to become a son or daughter. No. But for those who have been brought from death to life and have been called by grace through faith, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Now walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling, the good works which he has prepared for you, that you might walk in them of your high destiny as a son and daughter of the king who is high and lifted up. He has defeated death and he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of all of us. Every thought, every action, every deed. 
Praise God he is, uh, for his patience, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It is not our works that saves us, it is Christ that saves us, but he has saved us to life with him, that we might walk with him. Now walk in him. And we're just getting going here, uh, not just in where Paul, where Paul is going to take all of this into next week in the life of the local church. We've got lots to think about next week in verses 7 through 16 about what it means to further walk in a manner worthy of the calling together as a church, but in what walking in a manner worthy of the calling even further looks like, practically and ethically, like in almost every category of your life that I think you might think of in chapters 5 and 6. Like, remember, 4 verse 1 is a topic sentence for the rest of the book. So get ready for, like, all of the practical application in the next few weeks. Practical application coming out of your ears uh, throughout the rest of this book. So we've got a lot to do, and I'm really looking for it, but do it now. Christchurch, let's walk in a manner worthy of the family name. He has adopted us as his sons and daughters and has given us expectations and responsibilities because he is gracious, because he is kind, because he is humble and gentle and lowly in the heart that we might live like him, and walk in him. Let's pray for help that he would help us to do that this week. Our Father, it is such a place of privilege and joy and honor to actually call you Father, that you have indeed called us to yourself and adopted wayward orphans into your family as beloved sons and daughters. Help us to live into this family name. Help us to walk in the family name. Help us to be about the family business. Industrious. Working hard for your sake. Help us to be about maintaining the bond of peace, the unity of the family. Eager, even, to maintain this unity. Help us to even see places, just as we confessed earlier this evening, to see places in which we're failing in this that we might, might not even be aware of. Bind us more and more together as your people, one body, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father. Help us to live into this reality more and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.